You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Just a quick note. This series deals with sexual assault, so please keep that in mind when you decide when and where to listen. Also, you'll be hearing from a woman we're calling Susan. In order to protect her privacy, we aren't using her real name or her real voice. We're in a forest. We're on like a tiny winding road with these gigantic redwood sequoia. They're like, I don't even know over the river and through the woods. They're like multiple stories tall, reaching, reaching, reaching for the sky, like nature's fingers. To Francoise Borzat's house we go. Oh my God, there's a fucking deer. Wait, wait, wait. Hey, hey, little friend. Oh my God, you're so beautiful. This is a magical place. This is Cover Story from New York Magazine, Season 1, Power Trip. We're pulling off onto a dirt road. I'm Io Tillett-Wright. There's the house. It was the spring of 2021, and we were on our way to meet Francoise Borzat, the grand maven of psilocybin therapy. Hello, hello. Oh. Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hello. Let me just remind you, Francoise Borzat is the honey-voiced French woman that Lily first met at the Guild of Guides. I was like, wow, this is a person who is admitting to significant wrongdoing and who is telling us about the things that they did to try to make it right. Lily ended up leaving that underground community, but Francoise went from underground to center stage. Ladies and germs, this is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. Where it is she went on the wildly popular Tim Ferriss podcast. I think it's worth saying that your influence extends a lot further than people may realize into the medical communities, into the research and scientific communities. He's recently added a disclaimer to the episode, but this was well before that. Tim and Francoise get pretty winky-winky, jokey-jokey about what it's like to use the drug salvia. Different people have different sensitivities towards salvia. When I smoked salvia, I stared deeply at a fire hydrant for 12 minutes, but maybe that's just me. Some people are not sensitive to it very much. (laughs) Inside inside joke. Memories, memories. If you ask a wealthy tech mogul to recommend a psychedelic guide, Francoise has been a go-to for off-the-radar trips, sometimes for $5,000 a pop. She wrote a popular book that Michael Pollan promoted. She's advised local governments looking to legalize psilocybin, and she runs psychedelic retreats for grief-stricken parents out of Jamaica. Between Trump, COVID, police murders, and global warming, it feels like we're at our limits with existential pain. People are desperate for relief, and the purveyors of modern psychedelic therapy are only too happy to offer their services. People have been doing psychedelics for generations, 
But now they're looking to trip with some expert guidance, which means Francoise's phone has been ringing off the hook. So naturally, we called her too when we first started looking into psychedelic therapy. It's beautiful. This place Thank is you. unbelievable. Yeah. That's how we ended up at her house. We need a little safe haven, you know, when we start doing this work. So I'm from New York City, so this is like yes. nurturing. Yes. Well, you, you, you guys want to come in? The thing we were most interested in at the time was training. Because with so many people suddenly looking to a type of therapy that's not even legal yet, who is training all the psychedelic therapists? And what exactly are they being trained to do? I'm under the impression that you, you train other guides. Is that correct? That's right. There's a lot of population who wants to be trained. Everybody understands that this is coming around the corner, so they want to acquire the skill before or as the doors are becoming more open. Mm. Even though it's still really early days with the research, Oregonians have already voted to make psilocybin therapy legal starting in 2023. Psilocybin, by the way, is what puts the magic in magic mushrooms. So Oregon has all these task forces working out what exactly psilocybin therapy will look like in the state. And at the time that we spoke with her, Francoise was advising on best practices. I mean, other people are developing their training, but we have an extensive curriculum for all these years that we know has been refined and works well. So we have trained hundreds of people. And we're doing that in Jamaica. And we're training people in Canada. Actually, we have been training trainers here. So now we have about 50 trainers that can train groups. So it's going to be scaling like this. The bottleneck is we need to train enough trainers to dispatch trainings, right? Francoise, along with her husband and daughter, co-founded the Center for Consciousness Medicine, or CCM, to teach future practitioners of psychedelic therapy. There's a certain criteria to be certified at CCM, at uh, the organization that we have, and we train them in the art of delivering this work. When you talk about this work, what is this work? It's about creating a collaboration between me as a therapist slash guide and someone else who wants to heal, grow, become more mature, heal some trauma, discover life, spirituality, or purpose. Psychedelics are not meant to be taken alone. It's really a very disorienting territory. It needs to be supported by skillful people, someone who can support you, someone who can create the place in which you can unravel, essentially. The more the guide has experienced, the deeper the journey. Remember when Dr. Charles Grobe explained what's going on in our heads when we take various psychedelics? The ego boundaries tend to dissolve. Francoise sometimes talks like Dr. Grobe in psychological terms. We are melting down the structure of the ego. But Francoise also speaks in more mystical terms about mushrooms. There is an entire realm of energies, of spirit, of ancestors, of sense of love and possibility that is totally beyond this concrete and everyday consciousness. Mushrooms are made to liquefiers. This is what they are. They are an organism that, that liquefies itself very quickly in, on the land, right? And that's what it does to us. So the mushroom kind of make you be a corpse, right? Make you be a liquefied being and then you sink into the, the earth to lose your body, to die. What is it like to disappear? And then once you die, you become actually more available to other dimension. But it's not always easy to agree to disappear. We left Francoise at sunset, the California golden hour cutting through the trees. It looks like when you hold your fingers up to your eyes and you peekaboo through your eyes, except the fingers are all trees. I was impressed with her. My impression of her is that she's lovely and that she's extremely skilled and extremely experienced, clearly devoted her life to this work. And 
knows it as well as she knows herself. It wasn't until several weeks after our visit that I first talked to Lily and Dave about it. I mean, I wanted to do psychedelics with Francoise. We're really interested to know what were those things that, that like, captured you about it. Well, I was raised by people who were not so much into, like, giving a handbook for life. So by the time I got to psychedelics, I was just in a lot of pain but had no idea really how to handle it or what to do about it. And I didn't know that I had PTSD yet. I was just, like, doing drugs willy-nilly and hoping for the best. But if I'd had someone experienced to help guide me, maybe I wouldn't have had to take so many in so many, like, weird, shady, precarious situations before I stopped wanting to die. Yeah. Totally. PTSD is quite difficult, and I think being able to feel comfortable with somebody that knows what they're doing that can help you kind of work through really difficult things that come up if you're in an altered state. I, I totally get why that's appealing and I get how nurturing Francoise seems, but my view of Francoise changed over the last two years. How so? Yeah. All right. So basically, in December of 2019, Dave got an email from this woman. Hi there. there. I am a student at California California Institute of Integral Studies Studies in the weekend program. I had an experience in my first two years where I was essentially recruited by a TA into an underground guide training program. She had been training to become a psychedelic therapist with Francoise and her husband in this underground training program that they had. Hello. And she'd already reached out to James Kent, another podcaster that we know. Hi, this is James. Hi, how are you? Because she was feeling really weirded out. I felt like I woke up from something and I was like, who else is awake? You're on speakerphone. Do you mind if I record this conversation? Um, what, uh... I know. Listening to the tape of her... I was just sort of reaching out to you because I'm like, it's happening. It's really clear that she was trying to find other people who understood what she'd been through or who could see what she saw. I'd really appreciate it if you didn't use my name or anything for now. And eventually she was sent to us. I was searching for anyone who, like would get it. And talking to her is actually what really kicked off our investigation. Do you have like a pseudonym so that if we are going to say a name, we just say... Uh, I just keep thinking like, Susan. Like (laughs) a generic name. Susan works. Susan. Well, thanks for being flexible, Susan. Um... (laughs) I'm like, wait, who's Susan? (laughs) It's going to take a minute. It's kind of wild to be along for the ride. Yeah, I'm glad you all are here. So the reason that I want to tell you about Susan is because I think her story offers a really good window into what Francois's training and teachings are all about. Mm-hmm. But first, let me just back up and tell you a bit about how Susan ended up in this training in the first place. Please. All right. So she grew up back east. Small town. Both of my parents were social workers. Her dad. I'd come home and he'd have the DSM open and like be like, you should read this. The DSM is the core diagnostic text for psychology and psychiatry. It's like a dictionary of conditions. Yeah. I was always interested in how people's minds worked and things like that. Her mom was into transcendental meditation or TM. But my dad was never really into it. My dad wanted her to stop doing it because I think he realized they're putting her in trance states and then she's giving him all this money and all that. But then I also saw that my mom was so loving and wonderful and she helped so many people and all this stuff. Susan had a terrible time in her 20s when her mom was diagnosed with cancer and her mom died shortly after that. She actually endured a string of traumatic events around that age. My brother's child died. She was living in New Orleans when Katrina hit. I was sexually assaulted um, and raped. 
So she ends up moving to California and her East Coast friends are sort of worried about like the West Coast woo-woo culture. (laughs) And it was when she had gone to the West Coast that she got really into the idea of psychedelics for healing. Mm -hmm. As you do. I was getting really into the fact that there was now this psychedelic science, like I could like see the concrete evidence. Susan does a really big mushroom trip on her own. She's in her bedroom. She has the door closed. She's by herself. And a lot of grief around her mom's death comes up. Growing up, it was like, if you show emotions other than positive emotions, you're sensitive and dramatic. The mushroom trip really helped her. I mean, honestly, it was all grief. She decides she wants to volunteer at a big psychedelic science conference in 2017. What was interesting about this trial was that we were treating people with existential distress related to cancer. She's really moved by the talk about psilocybin for end-of-life cancer patients. What they described is just no longer being obsessed with it. It's not like I'm all of a sudden cool with death, but I'm just not obsessed with it. These people who are going to die, they're in stage four or five cancer, and they would do a large mushroom journey, and it would remove their fear of death, essentially. And, you know, that really spoke to me very much because I watched my mom go through that anxiety at her death, and I watched her be very confused and... So, you know, seeing that you could relieve someone of that anxiety, you know, that felt so powerful to me. Susan is starting to think seriously about becoming a psychedelic therapist. She enrolls in a small alternative college, the California Institute for Integral Studies, which is the same school that I went to for undergrad after I did three years at UC Santa Cruz. And I was like, oh, by the time I graduate, like, psychedelic therapy might be legal. And, you know, it was really exciting. She's in her first semester at CIIS, which is, you know, this alternative but accredited and above-ground institution. And she's doing a program to become just a normal psychotherapist. She's interested in using psychedelics with the therapy, but there's no hands-on classes at her school because it's still illegal. But it turns out that there's also a sort of portal to the underground if you looked for it. So she's immediately invited to an ayahuasca ceremony, which is sort of a retreat to drink this psychedelic tea with a bunch of people from the school, which is exactly what happened to me my first semester there. So Susan goes to this ayahuasca circle and one of her TAs starts doting on her. His name is Ayal Gorin, and he's a registered therapist who also assists the teacher of one of her classes at CIIS. And now he's here at this underground ceremony, and he's doing a bunch of eye-gazing with her and telling her how empathetic she is. And right as they're going to drink the drugs and take the ayahuasca... We were, like, about to go into the yurt to begin the ceremony, and he, I thought, I remember thinking, this is so weird. He was like, wait, wait a second, and he, like, pulls out his phone, and he's like, let me, let me, let me have you look at this. You should be in this underground psychedelic therapy training with me. And then we went into the yurt to begin the ceremony. I just want to jump in here and tell you two things. One, New York Magazine reached out to Ayal to ask him about this and all the details that you're going to hear from Susan. And through his lawyer, he generally declined to comment, except to say that Susan's allegations are false. And two, our team has reviewed almost 200 of Susan's text exchanges with Ayal and spoken to a few friends that she was close with at the time, and we've not found anything to contradict her story. So Susan is about to drink ayahuasca, which she's never done before. And this guy is showing her his phone and saying, you should do this psychedelic therapy training with me. I think it merits pointing out that she was about to take like a suggestibility enhancing drug. I was laying there and Eyal had turned to me and was like actively like facing me and like looking at me. Um They had stated in the beginning, like, not to enter anyone's space, like, energetically or physically. And there was something inside of me that was like, don't look at him. Don't look at him. But then there was something else inside of me that was like, 
I want to look at him. I want to look at him. We were just like smiling and eye gazing and like giggling. It was very childlike, but really, really intense. And then the ceremony ended and he looked over at me and he said, let's go get some tea. And that's when he said to me, like, I know I should be your mentor. I think I was just in that receptive state. Okay, okay. I've never done ceremonies before this. I never, I didn't know what was normal, what was not normal. And then he kept being like, oh my God, Susan, there's one more spot left. And I thought there were no spots left, but there's one more spot for you. And you're going to learn from my teachers. This is the last training they're doing together. I've never had anyone speak to me this way and talk to me and say it was meant to be. So it was very... um, roller coaster whirlwind of me just being like, okay, let's do it. So this TA is her mentor, and she is going to use her student loans to pay part of the $7,300 fee for the underground training program. He would be like, you're going to get into the training, and the training will start, and you're going to be with my teachers, Francoise and Aharon, and uh, you're going to join my community, and then we will be a family. And I kept kind of being like, I think I need to work with a woman because I just was, I felt uncomfortable with him. And he kept saying, no, that's your resistance. That's your resistance to this. And I was kind of then being like, oh, is it me being resistant? We'll be right back. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Cover Story from New York Magazine. Just to clarify where this person, the TA from Susan's school, has now brought her to Francoise and Aharon's underground psychedelic therapy training? Well, okay, before she can get to the actual training with Francoise and Aharon, she has to prepare by doing a series of drug sessions with her mentor. That's what's required for her getting into the training. Oh, it's like um, uh, mushrooms. And MDMA, yeah. He's teaching her something, or what's the purpose of those sessions? Yeah, I think part of it is like you're supposed to have these kinds of experiences to be able to offer these kinds of experiences. I don't know what the processes are for psychedelic. Like, I have no idea. So I was just trusting him, even though always not trusting him, too. I was always holding both. Is this okay? Is this not okay? I was always confused. Because any of my questions, he would frame it as, it was my own resistance. It was always my resistance. So some of the journeys are helpful to Susan, but she's thinking most of that is in spite of this guy. He talks nonstop gossiping to me about other people in my program, talking shit about one woman who had borderline personality disorder, talking shit about my friends. He says that all of his clients look like models, that they're all gorgeous. He's like, oh, she's in love with me. She's so beautiful and everything, but she's she was sexually abused when she was young. And she's thinking none of this should be shared with me. Anything I said, though, he would always go, no, that's wrong. No, it's wrong. No, you don't understand. No, that's wrong. No. 
One time, Susan is on MDMA. He's at her house with her, and she's lying on a mattress on the floor. I had deep catharsis for some childhood trauma. It was wonderful. It actually really helped me a lot. Towards the end of this whole journey, as Susan is coming down from the trip, she has this vision of a wolf. I told him that I saw like a vision of this wolf bringing me to a water source, and he was like, oh yeah, that's me. I'm the wolf. Ew. Yeah. And she has this voice in her head saying like, what? I was like, you don't enter my, you don't get to decide what you are in my head. He's like, well, the wolf's my spirit animal. And I was like, yeah, I don't think so. This guy is not acting like how Susan thinks a mentor or guide should be acting. She feels like he's crossing all kinds of boundaries that he is not supposed to be crossing. One time she asks for a hug after a really intense psilocybin journey. And he gave me a hug, but then he like moved back and just like stroked my body, like slowly moving down the side of me a slow stroking of my whole side and him like looking at my body. So that was weird and uncomfortable. But it was also like there was always the thing in my mind of like, he's helping me, he's helping me. It's a drug that makes you more open and accepting. Don't be like weirded out by him. He's helping me. So... Susan decides that maybe a path forward is to ask this guy to be her official therapist, not just her mentor. And the logic behind this is that the boundaries are clearer. Maybe mentor-guide boundaries are different, right? But if he's my therapist, I know what those boundaries are. Her therapeutic ethics class would frequently have this kind of call and response with the teacher. What is the number one rule? And we would all go... Don't fuck your clients. Okay. And that's just in the class that covers ethics and law for normal, traditional psychotherapy. It's even more of an issue when you're using psychedelics because they can really open people up. They make people even more vulnerable and they can amp up sexual feelings. So now this guy is her therapist and as a therapist, he's even weirder. He keeps kind of focusing in on their relationship. He kept telling me, like, our relationship is where the healing happens. So it was, I was under the impression that, like, we're supposed to fight. I'm supposed to get triggered. He tells her that all my clients try to have sex with me during these sessions. And it's like, they're gonna, they're, they're all your clients will try to have sex with you too. And you just never have sex with them. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to try to have sex with you. And he's like, yeah, you will. What? And this is a guy who at some point she realizes has been marketing himself explicitly as a therapist for women who've experienced sexual abuse. And he would also say, I I work differently than other people. I work differently. And I was always like, okay, like, cool, man. It's probably worth mentioning that this process and this person are her connection point to this training that she wants to do. He holds a certain key to her professional aspirations. He would get all excited and then he would go, I am your teacher and I am your mentor. I am your teacher and I am your mentor. At this point, Susan is still completing the prerequisites for uh, psychedelic journeys with her mentor. She hasn't even met Francoise Naharon yet, but she's still genuinely excited to be part of their training program. I was waiting to to meet Francoise and Aharon so I could judge for myself. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Brad. As this is all unfolding, she goes to a psychedelic sciences conference in L.A. where Francoise is speaking. My teachers along the way were all Native people. This is in 2018, so Francoise is already an icon in the psychedelic underground, but she's blowing up as psychedelics go mainstream. So when we look at how indigenous practices prepare for this kind of ceremony, we have a lot to learn from them. So she's on the same billing as a bunch of the scientists and experts from fancy universities and major organizations. 
And typically, even though she's a white French woman who lives in California, she's cast in this role as an expert on indigenous traditions with plant medicines. Uh, For those of us who are involved in clinical research, how do you suggest we do our best to incorporate the traditions? Well, um, I was like, oh, she's legitimate, right? She's being asked to speak at a scientific conference at UCLA. This made me think she's, she's something. People respect her and look to her for guidance. The whole experience of seeing Francoise at this conference leaves Susan really excited to work with her and do ceremony with her. Mm-hmm. But before she can start like the formal training, she's got to do a few of those group retreats with Francoise and Aharon and their daughter, Nama. We're moving away from academic and it's getting more into this like mystical, ethereal, sort of magical stuff. So yeah, she goes to her first event with Francoise. It's a women's ceremony. There's like 10 or 12 of us in the Redwoods in this little secluded in the mountain spot. We were all like dancing around to the drum and we had to build altars in the woods. Francoise sings in all these different languages in this beautiful, gorgeous lullaby voice. The redwoods are all above us. The wind is gusting and blowing, and there's leaves falling down. These women are all shuffling around us, playing all these instruments, doing all this music. They played singing bowls. They had bells. Francoise is singing all these beautiful songs. There was a Sufi song. There were songs in Spanish. There were songs in Hebrew. There were songs in Russian. The ceremonies themselves are often aesthetically really pleasing. You know, there's often a lot of beautiful fabrics and blankets and an altar and beautiful fragrances and, you know, feathers or wings that people are using to move smoke around the room. A good practitioner is a good performer. They're feeding off the vibe of the room And make no mistake, this is a highly refined performance. Susan is totally taken by this. And I totally get that. Like, I've sat in a number of ceremonies that are aesthetically very moving. Mm. Sounds epic. Yeah. At one point, I was crying I think it was something about my mom. I was having some griefs come up and um, Francoise came over and took off her shawl and put it around me and like hugged me. I mean, I can't deny it. It was a beautiful experience. I came home feeling great about them. I believe I texted all, Francoise and Nama are my new heroes. She goes to more retreats and ceremonies, and she's into them. And they seem to love her. There's this story that Susan tells where there's going to be this potluck thing at some point in the weekend, and she's been assigned to make the vegan lasagna. I stayed up really late the night before making nut cheeses, and I made, like, this incredible vegan lasagna that took me, like, hours and hours to make. She's not vegan. It was, like, this whole thing anyway, but I was pissed off that I got assigned to make that because I was, like, other people, like, brought fruit. Her mentor is running around making this big point of, like, how excellent her vegan lasagna is. Look at who I brought to join the group. Look at this talented woman that I offer to you. The last day, Francoise said, you know, Susan, I think next time we'll have you sing at the end. The leader woman was validating to me and acknowledging me and saying she wanted me to sing. And, you know, that felt very good. I think part of what some of this gets at is that a thing that keeps people coming back to this group is the sense of belonging. And once you have that sense of a group, it can make it easier to normalize things that might otherwise stand out as odd. 
One of the helpers had us all gather around him and he read us a children's storybook. And then he had us sing, You Are My Sunshine together. And we're all singing, You Are My Sunshine. And then we all got tucked into bed. I mean, they didn't tuck us in, but it was like, then it was bedtime. Somebody could have been like, this is fucking weird. Why are we doing this? But everybody else in the group seems to be going on with it. And it's like, Francois not her own, or mommy and daddy. And all these people in this group with you are like your brothers and your sisters. And in order to reinforce some of that narrative, we engage in activities that connect us to our innocence and our childhood together. They're not sleeping very much. There's lots of self-reflection and self-disclosure happening. People are generally just really open and trusting. And there's the vow that they all take together on MDMA, which... Excuse me, what? Yeah, so hold there's on, like hold a... On, hold on, There's a vow? Yeah. It says, we choose not to become overly preoccupied with our private life. Through and by this commitment, we experience that we are all interconnected and that helping others is helping ourselves too. So on the surface, that sounds fine, right? But what it's actually saying is remove your autonomy. Put the group ahead of you. I would not enjoy this experience. I mean, who knows? Maybe you would. Anyway, carry on, please. So we're still in a part of the story where Susan is vibing on the group training. I had this almost like unhealthy fascination that was keeping me in it. What is this? What am I doing? Like, what is this that I'm a part of? Meanwhile, she felt her mentor therapist just intruding more and more into her life. And she's getting more and more creeped out by him. So much of what was happening was just me trying to tell myself like it was okay. Susan finally does the last mushroom journey that's required for her to officially enter into the training. And she takes the drugs and she goes into this deep and vulnerable place. And then she realizes things are getting weird. He's there and then he's over here and then he's there and over here. And I'm like, why is he running around the room? It's very uh, agitating. The mentor is making all kinds of noises. He won't hold still. He was trying to get my attention. I don't know. I was high on mushrooms, too. So it was all whatever. And so finally I said, I said, come here right now. And he was like, oh, and then he came over and I go, lay down on the bed with me. And I grabbed his hand. This was my tactic to get him to chill out. But I also invited him into my space then, right? She's trying to just get him to stop and like feels like the best way to do that is to be like, I need you to come here. I started having like a real panic reaction then after that, where I was breathing heavy and in my head, it was, I felt like a wounded animal who was trying to get away. It was like a horse and I was hurt and like I needed to get away and I couldn't. He's also playing ridiculously loud music. Like death metal or something like that, to the point where it was hurting my ears. She has to kind of swim up to the surface of her drug trip. You have to turn it down, turn it down, please turn it down. I need you to turn it down. And and he wouldn't, he didn't, until I started yelling really loud and I started like screaming, turn it down, turn it, you, just turn it down. And then he finally turns it down. I remember thinking, oh, he just made a mistake. It was a mistake. It was an accident. But the journey is getting so intense that Susan starts vomiting. Vomiting, vomiting, vomiting. And I had like peed myself. So I was like, I got to go to the bathroom. And when she comes back, her mentor is sitting on the bed. Seated on the bed with his arms open and his legs open. He had like a pillow on his lap and he took my head and put it into his lap. My experience is that men get erections when you rub on their crotches. So that was um, very strange to me. But I was also like doing what he said. And then I, I remember just I was holding his foot and just like rubbing his foot and his leg. And he was just like petting my head. And like, I was feeling all kinds of things. I was like, do I want to have sex with this man? But also he feels like my mom. 
when you're on these substances, it's not like you can't think. You you think things, you feel things. It's just you're not experiencing reality in a normal way. So it's like you don't really know what the boundaries are of reality, too. I didn't want him to do anything. I I was scared that he would do something, but that's that's the thing that's scary about it is that I was frozen, right? It's one of those like can't compute or make sense while it's happening kind of mm-hmm. moments. Mm-hmm. When she told that story, it reminded me a lot of how I had felt in the Amazon, that similar internal experience of like having the questions and I can't really emphasize enough, like she's she's on drugs. They're drugs that enhance suggestibility and make people accepting. And she's with a therapist who is always telling her to give in, to stop trying to control things and to let go of her resistance. So, um, yeah, the session ultimately ends with an unsolicited hug. He like came up behind me and took me by the waist and then hugged me again. And again, he's like slow moving his hands down my sides, hugs. And I wasn't asking for hugs. In Francoise Naharon's underground training, you're also supposed to train in a form of body work. And you're also supposed to train in a form of like esoteric energy work, like Reiki. or mm. So that sets somebody like Susan up to be expecting some of these non-standard interventions like touch. Mm. But in some ways, the rules... And the expectations can be really confusing. And after it's over, she goes home to a friend of hers and is telling the friend about her experience, including this part where the guide is holding her head in his lap. She was like, well, was it, did it help you? And I was like, "Uh, I, maybe I was in an intimate position with a man and he didn't rape me. Like, was that the healing? So she was just sort of like, okay, uh... Want to watch the R. Kelly documentary? (laughs) There comes a point where Susan just cannot take this guy. She decides that he's ridiculous. She tells Aol that she's going to quit therapy with him. And she says that his reaction to that news is as if they're in a romantic relationship and he's begging her not to break up with him. He called me, so I answered the phone, and he was like, we're going to do one more MDMA session, and in it, you're going to fight me. You're going to fight me. What the fuck? I would love to know the explanation for the benefit of that. We will definitely get there. I got off the phone call, and I was like, I'm never speaking to him ever again. It was deeply disturbing to me. And that's when I reached out to Francoise, because I was like, they probably want to know. Please tell me that Francoise writes back and says, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Fuck this guy. He's out. Well, something like that. She immediately was like, you know this. I know this. This is not a therapeutic relationship. Nothing about that sounds therapeutic at all. This is not therapeutic. We, you know. And then she was like, we'll get you a new mentor. She BCCs Susan on an email to the guide. It says, hello, I have been in conversation with Susan. It looks like there are some present challenges in your dynamic. I have decided that I want her to work with a different mentor and therapist at this time. In the spirit of compassion and mindfulness, I ask that you do not contact her at all for the time being. This space and silence will be fruitful in easing this process before attempting further resolution. Thank you, love, Francoise. I just want to note here that when our fact checker reached out to Francoise and Aharon about the phone call and the email, they declined to comment. I told you earlier that when New York Magazine reached out to A.L. Gorin to hear his side of the story, through his lawyer, he generally declined to comment, except to say that Susan's allegations were false. But there was one interesting extra detail. The lawyer said that allegations against Ayal were not being made by clients, but by colleagues, meaning he never provided Susan with therapy. But Susan has shown supporting evidence to us and a state regulatory agency that he was her therapist. There are texts, there are copies of checks, there's the email Lily just read you written by Francoise. Oh, and there's a letter to an airline that Ayal wrote as Susan's therapist so she could travel with her emotional support dog. 
Okay, so this whole I'm not your therapist thing is actually something that Susan says that Ayal tried to tell her on the phone when she was finally trying to break up with him as her therapist. All of a sudden, he jumps in with this whole, we never did therapy together, Susan. We never did therapy together. Um, That's actually a pretty typical fallback for people who are offering therapies that might break the like official rules or standards of their profession. So they might call themselves coaches or guides, not therapists. Susan was done with all at that point. But she was still really excited to get to learn from Francoise and Aharon. And then I started the training. They took our cell phones and put them in a box and put them in the other room. They gave us thumb drives with all of the reading materials for the training on it. And, you know, everything was kind of posed as like, this is all super secret. And we were all like, oh, we've got our super secret thumb drive. And the first part is like this lecture, this like in-depth introduction to Francoise Naharon's lineage and how they learned to be psychedelic guides. Francoise and Aharon kind of doing their their shtick. A little bit like an intellectual history. Like they tell the story of Aharon coming to the U.S. from Israel. And he joined TM and became a TM teacher. The same transcendental meditation that Susan's mom was into. So for me, that was a red flag. She's sort of like, oof. But then Francoise moves from France and meets Aharon, and they both start learning from this wild and brilliant Mexican psychiatrist. He's giving people drugs and keeping them up all night and projecting crazy things on the walls. Pornography on one wall and then like murder on another wall while these people were on these substances. Playing really loud music, flashing strobe lights. Six hours in or something, then they'd bring them ketamine and give them ketamine. So they were on multiple things. And then after that, they would like bring in the family members of the people and have them talk to their family members in these states and then keep them up for another day. And then the next day, give them mescaline. They described it with a laugh, you know, old days, back in the day. And everyone in the group, we were all like, oh, oh my God, what? With like, uh, like a grin. He was such a, you know, creative, edgy healer. Mm-hmm. And Susan goes home and reads more about him on the secret thumb drive they've given her. When I was actually reading it and away from them, I was like, this is really fucked up. I remember she talked about this guy when we were there. He was a pioneer, you know, it was the wild 70s or beginning 80s, and he was he was doing wild work. And this, like, thing about jolting people out or pushing past people's resistance and breaking down their ego and, and how that helped them get, I remember this. Yeah, Salvador Roquette. Salvador Roquette. That's the guy. She thought that he was very, like, revolutionary and ahead of his time. It was the frontier, it was the Wild West, you know, but... Um, if it was not for people like this, we wouldn't be doing what, at least I couldn't be doing what I'm doing. And she started talking about how she also uses music in the way that Salvador Roquette did. And so did this other mentor guy, Pablo Sanchez, who was also a student of Roquette's. They wanted to agitate, was I think the word. My teacher used to play very intense music for us. But you know, personally, I love it. I love the music that is so challenging that it 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 encounters something in me that nothing else meets. You know, some people are really really trapped in very narrow boxes and and it takes some something to get them out of it. My understanding is that that's a part of what she is known for is is um, agitating people past their their barriers. But you know, I'm kind of weird that way. <laughs> I'm kind of weird that way. I have this unlimited curiosity towards weirdness. Anyway, <laughs> because I like I like consciousness. You know, I like states. I like I like um, I, I I like the territories of the of the limit. I like boundaryless places. You know, if you love someone who is very constricted, you know, bringing them to the edge of their liberation 
might require something different than just being, you know, really nice and tender. And so, yeah, I train people like this. Yeah, I think one of the things I often think about with regard to Salvador Roquette is that there's a difference between helping people break free or shake things off and just straight up breaking people. Next time, it's not just Susan and it's not just A.L. So I have some more stories for you. And I think one of the refrains that comes up a lot is that this isn't bad apples, this is bad ideas. Sorry, but it sounds like a bad tree. Or maybe a whole orchard. Cover Story is a production of New York Magazine. Power Trip is co-created, produced, and reported by David Nichols and Lily K. Ross. Hosted and produced by me, Io Tillett-Wright. Our senior producers are Marianne McCune and Whitney Jones, also produced by Taka Zen and Liza Yeager. Our executive producer and editor is Hannah Rosen. Music by Links Demuth and John Ellis. Cover Story's theme music is by Santi Gold. Sound design and engineering by Mike Cruz and Sharif Youssef. Fact-checking by Bertina Cheng and Ted Hart. And Crystal Finn is the voice of Susan. Special thanks to Legal Minds' Alyssa Cohen and Samantha Mason, and also to Isabel Dawn and James Kent from the podcast Dose Nation. Power Trip is also produced with Symposia, a nonprofit watchdog group. For a deeper dive into some of these issues, visit symposia.com slash powertrip, which is P-S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-A. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.